0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Strategies for Optimal HIV Treatment and Prevention, Answering the Questions on Choosing Between Initial ART Options, featuring Dr. Marta Bethito and Dr. Michelle Cespedes. Dr. Bafito is a consultant physician and clinical director in HIV, sexual and gender health and dermatology at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust, Imperial College London, in London, UK. Dr. Suspides is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, New York. For the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Bufito and Dr. Sespedes have to say about initial ART.
1: Great. Thank you, Jessica. This is Martha Bufito, and I'm going to start by going through the guidelines and what they recommend for first-line antiretroviral therapy regimens for the majority of people living with HIV. And then I will pass the word to Michelle, who will continue with other important areas around initiation of antiretroviral therapy. So as you can see illustrated here, Although the majority of guidelines indeed recommend to start two NRTIs in a high genetic barrier, second generation and unboosted, of course, integrase inhibitor, there are also alternatives either around the concept of two drug regimens. In fact, you can see that the lutegravir and lamivudine is one of the recommended Combinations of antiretroviral therapy for initiation, but also interestingly, the European guideline also report older integrase inhibitor like raltegravir and the NNRTI doravirine, the last approved NNRTI doravirine, together with again two NRTI. Specifically, either 3TC or FTC and either TDF or, or TAF. So this is really what is happening today uh, around the world mainly. However, there are some hot topics around initiation of antiretroviral therapy and weight gain. I'm sure you're aware is one of them. In fact, This slide shows the result of a meta-analysis that was published on clinical infectious diseases uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, this meta-analysis highlighted the amount of weight gained after starting antiretroviral therapy, looking at different classes. So you can see that integrase inhibitors led to an increase in weight. Gain that was higher than other third agents such as protease inhibitors and NNRTIs, and within the integrase inhibitor class, bictegravir and dolutagravir led to a weight gain that was higher than elvitegravir sister And when we look at NRTIs to combine with the integrase inhibitors, tough was the NRTI that seemed to lead to a higher rate of weight gain compared to other drugs uh, followed by Agbacavir, TDF, and AZT. Interestingly, when they looked at other factors that may be associated with weight gain when starting antiretroviral therapy, the same study looked at race and gender and identified black Females as the group of people living with HIV at a higher risk of gaining weight after starting therapy, followed by black males. And this is in accordance with the data that have been produced from other areas of the world, such as the advanced study from sub-Saharan Africa where, again, Black women seem to be at a higher risk of gaining weight after starting antiretroviral therapy. Interestingly, there are also cohort studies that look at weight gain and the, the RESPOND cohort looked at the risk factors for weight gain and they highlighted the use of the and raltegravir. so the use of integrase inhibitors, uh, the use of taf. And the low pre antiretroviral therapy initiation BMI and black race as risk factors associated with significant weight gain. So, in this in this context, Michelle, would you like to add anything to to the data that that we're showing? Any comments on that? So the things I usually
2: you know, take into account is what I've seen in my own clinic, how often, especially as we use integrase inhibitors almost exclusively for initiation of therapy. And I'd say the vast majority of our patients, even those more treatment experienced, are on an integrase inhibitor-based regimen. How often do I see weight gain on the order? And if we go back, the kilograms were about, you know, anywhere from two to five kilograms over, over two years. And that, that's a significant amount of weight. You know, I, I jokingly say two pounds here, kilogram here or there is not that much of a difference, but uh, anywhere from eight to 10 pounds over two years is significant. And of the hundreds of people that we've started on these regimens, I don't see that often. So then I take into account, you know, who are these trials done in, right? And I think the respond data that actually looked at the, the compounding factor of the pre-treatment BMI, whether or not whether someone was underweight, so what we would consider underweight a BMI under 18, they were more than twice as likely to have this weight gain. So, is this really someone who's you know well nourished gaining 10 pounds in two years versus someone who may have already been ill or feeling the effects of their HIV and this weight gain? Was more of a return to health or a return to their their baseline. I think the other things that we have to take into it is you know age of the participant, the hormonal differences between men and women, what's culturally accepted. I remember years ago noticing that some of my patients were asking for supplements or how they can keep their weight up. I'm like, but you know technically you're already overweight or your weight is fine, but culturally it was more desirable. So wasn't necessarily thought of as an adverse event or something of the sort. So I take into account who the patient is, what their starting point was, and how often I I see it. But again, I think, you know, it is a concern of people, so I make sure we have that discussion and talk about the data as well. And similarly, with the differences between tenofovir elophenamide versus The dioxyl fumarate, the older, I call it the 1.0 version of tenofovir. There does seem to be a correlation in more than one study with more weight gain with the tenofovir aliphenamide preparation. But as we kind of look into more depth, is it maybe that over the years, the TDF formulation actually suppressed weight gain? So it's not that it necessarily TAF was. So much worse, but that TDF actually might have some weight suppressive effects. There's some data in some switch studies, people who initially started on TDF and then switched its half that that might be the case. But I think more data is needed and more time in observing people over time, but especially as TDF falls out of favor here more in the States because of some patent issues and safety profile and data. But around
1: the world, we actually might see that in use. Yes, indeed. That is very true. But very interesting, you did say about having the conversation and following and monitoring people. And this is really important, I think, because when we talk about weight gain, we're not just thinking about those extra kilos, but obviously we need to also look at the potential development for cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome. And data are, yeah, and data today are available showing that cardiovascular event risk is higher. We know that cardiovascular disease is higher in people living with HIV compared to people without HIV. Interestingly, however, there's extra factors that have been shown that seem to be associated with an increased cardiovascular event risk. So from the respond cohort, integrase inhibitors have been shown to be associated with an increased rate of cardiovascular events for the first 24 months of INSTi exposure compared to no INSTi exposure. So this is a prospective cohort, but very, very important data that made us talk a lot about it. And that was This data were published on Lancet HIV last year. A lot of conversation around this. Now, recently, however, at CROI, a data from the Swiss HIV covert study were presented and they looked at the Impact of integrase inhibitors on cardiovascular events in this uh, again in Switzerland. Uh, So basically what they looked at uh, people who started on integrase inhibitors or started on other antiretrovirals and uh, calculated the cardiovascular event risk. And uh, the baseline characteristics were not remarkably different, however, uh, in the group that started integrating inhibitors, there was a higher percentage of people on abacavir. This was probably driven by the single-tablet combination, including abacavir, lamivudine, and dolutegravir when it was introduced into clinical practice, and also a remarkably higher percentage of people on TAF, and this is, again, probably due to the availability of the big FTC TAF single tablet combination. So I think this is worth noticing. None of the other baseline characteristics were remarkably different. And interestingly, uh, they showed that there was no difference observed in adjusted cardiovascular events, incidence between integrase inhibitor-based heart compared to other antiretrovirals. And again, when when the analysis was adjusted for the baseline characteristic, which is very interesting, quite new. Again, if you think about the data published a year before that, from the respond cohort. I don't know whether you want to add any any comments on this, Michelle, because I think it really shows that we need more data, right? Because we need an Absolutely,
2: answer. absolutely. So the respond data is a much larger cohort, but I think it is important that we adjust and take into account, you know, modifiable factors and some non-modifiable, right? So the this study actually took into account, you know, race, gender, and some other factors. But I think it's important if you kind of uh, are myopic about it, you can pick one drug or one class of drug that definitely seems to have a much larger incidence over time. But I like that this study has a longer observation time, so all the way out for eight Very years looking at some of this data, right? So even though it's a smaller cohort. The eight year. Um, it's very important year, for you know, cardiovascular events, indeed. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. And, you know, as you pointed out, you know, the importance of weight gain, the couple of pounds here or there, but oftentimes, you know, when we take into account not just weight, but some of the other metabolic risk factors, you talk metabolic syndrome factors, sometimes those extra pounds or the slight change in your blood pressure. Can switch you over into a category where now it would be, you know, your ASCBD score. I'm not sure Europeans use the same score, but when we calculate who should be on a statin or not for protective purposes, sometimes the change in weight can actually flip you into another category or increase your risk of developing diabetes and things of this sort. So weight, as we think, of, you know, modifiable risk factors, modify them right? Better diet, more exercise. But sometimes it can actually put you into a category. And we know that HIV in and of itself might be a high enough risk factor. Hopefully we'll be getting more more data from the reprieve study. But there might be something just about HIV in and of itself that you're already in a higher category. and, And some of these calculators that we that we use to determine who should be on more protective medicines and prophylaxis might be moot
1: for HIV. Absolutely. And yes, you raised a really important matter, which is modifiable in lifestyle. It's only, I think it's the only factor that we are 100% sure it helps. Right? right? The data we are control, immense.
2: that we can within counsel it, patients
1: We Yeah, we can control. The data within the HIV field, outside the HIV field, are immense on the topic. We know that diet and exercise is the best you can do in, right. in whatever context. And getting patients to stop smoking. I always tell Absolutely. that to the students as well. Absolutely. And this is published within the HIV field, where you okay. know it it, it is these main factors that can really decrease. Of course, let, let's never forget about that. Great. I'm just gonna let you lead towards the end.
2: So, what we do, are considerations for patients of childbearing potential. So, here in the U.S., Department of Health and Human Services recommendations for people living with HIV who are. Ob- childbearing potential. What it clearly states is that contraception should not be required to actually start antiretroviral treatment regimen or continue them for an individual patient, even if there's limited data on pregnancy. So for the vast majority of all of the data that we have on the safety in pregnancy, we really get from reported outcomes in pregnancy, from the antiretroviral pregnancy registry. Ideally, providers, when they have a patient who is pregnant either is diagnosed with HIV during the pregnancy or already known and becomes pregnant while on treatment, their data should be entered and actually followed longitudinally. Ideally, it's much better than actually reporting the data after the pregnancy. What we are concerned or what we've seen in the past is that if there is a, an adverse outcome, either with the mom or the child, then that data is, you know, preferentially reported after the birth. so that you actually might have a bit of a bias in, in reporting. We think that may have happened years ago with the Favrens. But ideally, all pregnant women or all women who are exposed to antiretrovirals should be included in the registry. The next point is actually States that healthcare providers should engage in what's called shared decision making, really providing our patients with information, counseling, talking about the risk and benefits, and having them be an active participant in the decision on which regimen to start or to continue. Lastly, whenever possible, really, we ideally, what we our main goal is actually to prevent mother-to-child transmission and data has shown is really getting the mom undetectable or at least a viral load under a thousand by about week 36 or so, ideally. So, you know, time is virus. You really just wanna have and make sure you have enough time to get the patient undetectable before delivery. If that's not possible, we actually would advise a C-section, but again, a natural birth, is better for both the mom and the baby, and whenever possible. So, getting the patient undetectable is Of course, as drugs get easier to tolerate, and especially with the integrase inhibitors where there are fewer drug drug interactions, that we still have to be mindful uh, of the potential of changes in either the concentrations of the antiretrovirals or sometimes of the uh, contraception being used this is a chart of the most common or the, probably the most significant drug drug interactions between first line antiretroviral regimens and contraception the good news is that even though there are occasionally interactions that affect the pk or the the blood concentrations of the uh, contraception or the antiretroviral regimen. These changes, even though 27% sounds high, these changes are actually not considered significant enough to actually modify or change the dosing or dosing interval for the uh, antiretroviral. So even with the potential of changes in uh, concentrations in the in the blood, no dose adjustment is needed for. The antiretrovirals that are listed in as first line in pregnancy and for initiation of therapy and commonly used contraception. So I'm not sure, Marta. What are the most common modalities of contraception where you provide care?
1: Yeah. So I mean, there, the the, the the implant is very popular. Progesterone long-acting is popular, but also oral contraceptives, coils, maybe all of them. It's it's great to have a choice because, you know, we're all different and we all have different lifestyles. So, I mean, you know, it's fantastic to see this data and these recommendations where we don't have to worry about drug-drug interactions anymore. With the older antiretrovirals, you really felt that women were left behind from a a contraception point of view. And today, the fact that the antiretrovirals don't affect or very, very small changes, as you said, below 30%, so not clinically significant, but they don't affect antiretrovirals. So the contraception doesn't affect antiretrovirals and especially antiretrovirals don't affect contraception is is fantastic because we we are really able to deliver equitable care to everybody and use effective and well-tolerated combinations.
2: I agree. I think
1: as people become more confident, what I've seen over the the past two decades is
2: the increased use of IUDs, even here in the States, some hormonal, some not, actually. Uh, even having conversations with patients, I, I think I used to think that people would be reluctant to have you know a foreign body there, but actually, as data and safety is, is shown that it's safe and effective, and you know most of the population is using it with confidence as well. Our patients are just being treated no different. So, just quickly, just wanted to go over the first line what the guidelines say. Just based on data. So remember, a lot of this is based on on data and smaller either cohorts or safety and PK studies or first-line ART regimens to initiate during pregnancy. Being mindful that if, if a person of childbearing potential actually becomes pregnant on a regimen, that might not be first-line in the guidelines, but they're, they're doing well on and they're undetectable and tolerating well. What we can sometimes recommend is actually maybe more frequent monitoring more of the viral load, especially during the second and third trimester as the the volume of of blood increases for all pregnant women. So the way I explain it to patients is to think of it as, even though you're putting the same amount in your body, we're diluting what the concentration might be. As your blood volume increases, we have to be more mindful. Uh, the effectiveness of the drug. So again, similarly, a lot of data and the safety of uh, W-tegravir in particular in terms of the integrase inhibitor. Uh, But around the world and just without over decades of experience, we still have NRTIs as frontline as well. Protease inhibitors have fallen out of favor, I think, more, not as effectiveness, but more tolerability. And drug drug interactions and sometimes can be just more nauseating than some of the other regimens. So, again, we always take into account tolerability and efficacy as well. In terms of the backbones, still recommending a 2 NRTI backbone for first line, again, just based on years and years of data. There's insufficient evidence or data to whether or not a two-dry regimen alone would be sufficient in in pregnancy. But I think as more people become pregnant on it and we have more data, if all the data is included in the registry, we will see more data over time. And you mentioned earlier, just really how frequently the fixed-dose combination of big-tegravir, and non elephantamide is used. Definitely here in the States, and in Europe, I believe, more so than in other resource-limited settings. Uh, there are more and more women who are, uh, I not say, more and more patients of have childbearing potential who can become pregnant or become pregnant on that, that regimen. So we are seeing some data, not large data sets, but again, not sufficient enough to be lifted up or lauded in the guidelines as well. But I think over time, we'll, we'll get to see more data. Of the use of the fixed dose combination that includes Integravir in pregnancy. Let's go over just a few of the take home points of the slides that we presented so far. And then we'll open it up for a conversation both between Martyr and I and the group and viewers as a whole. So, our take home points would be in terms of weight gain for people living with HIV. There have been meta-analyses and data over time that shows some of the consistent risk factors have been a black race, low pre-treatment BMI, and for the uh, respond data, that BMI, I believe, is lower than 18, if I remember correctly, 18.5. And the combination of the use of integrase inhibitor and tenacobiralefenamide in particular for weight gain. In the response study, uh, cardiovascular events really increased within the first two years of integrase inhibitor exposure compared to those who did not initiate treatment with an integrase inhibitor. But in contrast to that, for the Swiss HIV cohort study participants, after adjusting for baseline characteristics, there was no difference in the rate of cardiovascular events over time over the eight year study period. And lastly, I think it's important to state that it's important for all of our patients who have the ability to become pregnant, really discussing fertility desires. And what I mean by that is usually do you intend to have any children or any more children if you already have children? What contraceptive are you currently using? Making sure they're aware that uh, they can prevent the transmission from mother to child. I've had patients who actually didn't realize that once they became or were diagnosed with HIV, that they actually could have a child who was not HIV infected. So making sure you have shared decision-making and a discussion about fertility besides and contraception. I've fallen victim to this too. I'm much better at it now. But making sure we actually do a pregnancy test before we initiate therapy and actually when we switch therapy too. Sometimes it can be several weeks before someone is actually aware that they are pregnant, and it's always best to be mindful. But I think we do all the other checklists with labs and and you know viral load and resistance testing, and sometimes don't even simply have some of our patients urinate into a cup really quickly. To make sure that we're doing everything as safe as possible, but being mindful of the conversation is actually helpful. Marta, do you take care of, of patients who become pregnant or, yes, to you know, yes,
1: have uh, children over time? Yeah, indeed, we do have a uh, not not very many, not high number, but we definitely see women living with HIV who are conceiving on antiretrovirals. Uh, or are diagnosed during pregnancy and needs to start antiretrovirals. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question sure. about it. Because I so recent data show that switches of antiretrovirals in pregnancy don't seem to affect efficacy and viral load outcome. However, other data. Show that the mental health and the confidence in antiretroviral therapy of the woman can be affected. So, changing antiretrovirals during pregnancy can cause distress. What is your experience with the newer combinations? Do you still think that we need to try to be as consistent as possible and worry about it or just? with the flow, the guidelines and not worry too much. I think the most important thing again is maintaining the viral suppression. So keeping
2: my patient undetectable, both for her health and safety and that of the baby. I think what I tend to do actually if someone is tolerating a regimen well and even if it isn't you know the highest or has the best data on the guidelines, what I've done is actually have a, having the conversation with the patient This is the data that we know. This is some of my experience and making sure that she knows that she's an active member in the decision making. But I will tend to actually keep them on a regimen if I think it's not contraindicated or or she hasn't been having trouble or we don't see any viral blips. And we'll tend to actually viral load test them a little bit more frequently in the third trimester. I really just want to make sure, and it's you know reassuring her as well that we can maintain viral suppression. So I think you know there, there's data, and there's you know what's the true principle. You know what we're trying to do. My, our job is to keep them undetectable and prevent the baby from becoming positive, and we get that with viral suppression. So if someone is suppressed and on a regimen that isn't completely contraindicated. In pregnancy, and those are few and far between at this point now. Just on based on some of the more modern regimens that we use, I will tend to keep someone on a regimen, namely because the fixed dose combination of big tag Interested in being FTC? I'm making sure I'm not there, using any commercial names. It's so common. Having that discussion and keeping them on it if they're in agreement with it or switching them to something that's comparable and tolerable that will maintain that viral suppression. Now, if I have someone who is initiating therapy, you know, recently diagnosed, but plans to become pregnant within a year, year and a half or so, I maybe would not put them on that regimen to start. I might put them on a, a pregnancy friendly regimen based on the guidelines to start with. And then carry on from there. Then I'm less likely to switch if things are going well.
1: So, if someone is on the Lutagravir and Lamidudine and refuses to switch, what would you Prefuses do? To Sorry to put you on the spot. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm saying. No, I thought, no, okay, no. Okay, it go it has, ahead. It hasn't come
2: up for, come up for me as yet. But again, I think the data is, you know, but I think I would be confident enough again to continue the frequent viral load monitoring. And especially after I've had the conversation and they say that they do not want to switch. I think in all honesty, I might I personally might be more comfortable on a three drug regimen, but after having the conversation and the patient tells me that they do not want to switch after we've discussed the risk and you know what we're concerned about, doing the frequent monitoring.
1: I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of data on Dolutagravir, you know, efficacy in leading to an undetectable viral load when starting pregnancy and also maintaining an undetectable viral load. And you you said it a few times, and I think it is the most important thing, Mm -hmm. making sure you have the conversation, you share the data, and you make the person in front of you be part of the decision. So they, you know, in the ideal world, you would start the app, just nice. at least for the third trimester from it just because that's what we know but uh, if you can do the monitoring and the viral remains undetectable maybe we should start accumulating data report the Correct. pregnancy in the registry because that's really important it is when we have enough pregnancies nice. on a certain combination right on Correct. the registry that we can then be confident of that so yeah. And with components a- that I'm confident in that
2: I've used for years. I remember your original slide when we talked about the different guidelines for not in pregnancy, but for all comers. The European or the European AIDS Clinical Society guidelines actually include Diraverine, which I don't use commonly, right? So maybe if someone was pregnant in a duraverine-based regimen, I'd be a little bit more skittish, because I'm not take- too familiar with it hasn't been around that long, definitely much less data
1: in pregnancy. Do you Good use duravirin commonly or often? We use duravirin a lot. We don't really? think- Yeah, we do actually, yeah. That's why it's in the in Europe That's why it's on the E-X guidelines for starting. Um, it's a well-tolerated drug and we, however, we don't have data on the third trimester in terms of exposure. So we are, yeah. we are cautious and we follow guidelines.
2: Yeah. I definitely think patients pick up on our nervousness too, right?
1: Yeah, And say,
2: this yeah, is a drug course. I don't use often and it should work, but I'm not familiar. I think, you know, I think we, we definitely have more, more influence over our patients, even with shared decision making, but uh, yeah. it is important to do.
1: Yeah. So there's a, this is a question that, that says, can you speak about breastfeeding, please? <laughs> Do you want to tell us that you are- So too recently able? here in the States,
2: I'm not sure uh, in Europe, but recently here in the States, actually, what we were noticing is, you know, essentially the the principles are the same, right? In terms of mother to child transmission, the vast majority happens at the time of delivery. But of course, earlier in pregnancy, but there is a fraction that actually happens postpartum, and it can be sometimes associated either with the kind of the immaturity of the the GI tract of children. But It's actually thought maybe more commonly with maybe micro tears or mastitis, or maybe some virus getting into breast milk and breastfeeding. So for many years, especially in the resource-rich settings, we said don't even risk it. You know. Formula fed, feeding is is best. Why, why risk exposing the child? But I think that that sense actually doesn't take into account that access to formula feeding and even just clean water in many places of the world is disproportionately affected by age. Of, you know, your child is more likely to die of a diarrhea if you don't have access to clean water. And breastfeeding can be healthier as if you can, right? So ideally, with breastfeeding, we do want the prophylaxis for the baby for at least those six weeks. We want the mom, of course, to be undetectable if possible. But now, again, we are actually advocating for more of a shared decision-making in terms of counseling the mothers with breastfeeding. And what we really want to do is take away the stigma and sometimes even the criminality of some of the cases that we've heard around the country where people can either be threatened or actually have their children taken away if they decide that breastfeeding is the option that they want to pursue. So in terms of breastfeeding, again, we want undetectable as much as possible, safest options, making sure that there's shared decision-making and people know the risk, that there is a slight risk, even if a mom is undetectable of transmitting to the child, but that they are not, you know, either going to be risk any criminal criminal threats or risk of losing their child.
1: Very I'm not sure what the, what the sentiment is yeah. in Europe. Very yeah, similar. Very similar. We're moving really much towards that. Yeah. Very similar. So, burning question, because I think you already said it. <laughs> Would you switch someone who is already suppressed on BKFTA to a dolutagavir-containing regimen if they are contemplating pregnancy?
2: Contemplating pregnancy, probably not. Probably not. I would discuss with them the data. I think if someone has not started a regimen yet and they're just initiating and they're saying that they plan to become pregnant in the next year or two, that might be different but if someone is already tolerating it and doing well and saying that i probably want to become pregnant in the next year or two i think the risk of someone getting off schedule or risk of maybe not tolerating tolerating a new regimen as well is probably higher than the the risk of them actually transmitting to their unborn child during the pregnancy or after so i would actually probably in my opinion, continue them on their current regimen that they're tolerating well, do the counseling, and, and make sure that I check their pregnancy test every time they come to see.
1: Great. Okay. Now we're going to move away from pregnancy. And no! So <laughs> we'll get back. Okay. We'll get this is very interesting. I'm going to share my experience if it's okay, and then please do add what you think. So, if someone has failing oral prep with TDF FTC, I would imagine, and this is what we have approved here in the UK, for example, and in the majority of European countries, and, and TAF is, is actually TAF FTC around the corner in the context of, of prep. But if someone is failing oral prep, would you do a rapid start with a boosted darunavir or Dolutegravir or wait for genotype? So. Our experience is that the likelihood for them to actually have an undetectable viral load and a very slow seroconversion is quite high. So usually we add dolutegravir. You know, keep in mind, again, we have PDFFTC, so we would just add dolutegravir. Do all the determinations that we need to do, make sure, you know, that the diagnosis is confirmed. And uh, sometimes even send off the proviral DNA because that is the only test that we can request because we don't have enough viral replication to actually run a resistant test on, on the RNA. And and we have experience we see here in, in one of our clinics in Bean Street, uh, incredibly. High number of people on prep and some zero conversion yeah. inevitably. Uh, so that's what we do. We don't tend to use the boosted PI as much anymore. We do use the high genetic barriers, second generation integrase inhibitor, and it's a you know the, the Levy Olivai syndrome has been described for cabotegravir. But that is very similar to what we are seeing in the context of the zero conversions on, on prep. I don't know whether you have any anything else that you want to add from, from your experience. I agree. I think of
2: the integration inhibitor, the addition of the integration inhibitor as the gold standard. And there is data even for people who are on for a second line switch. Even if there is a distant history of an M one eighty-four, even putting them on of Beer 3 TC alone where you think might not be safe or might not be ideal when they actually go and look through resistance testing, or these people can't actually suppress even on second line therapy. <laughs> so it makes sense that if it's first line and you know, I'm not sure if I truly believe that it, it's true resistance to those. TDF, FTC, or when the breakthroughs from prep, or when someone does zero convert, but uh, I think an integrated based regimen uh, would often be fine. And now we get information—you in, know, two weeks, three weeks—we wouldn't be doing harm, or or really fostering the creation of a highly resistant virus. By the time we get more additional information, so. I agree
1: with your, me, yeah. with your approach. Yeah, great. We also have a, a question on, on weight gain. So basically, they're asking us in people on integrase inhibitor whether there is a different proportion of weight gain in people on TAF versus TDF. which I think it's quite clear from the advanced study that people mm-hmm. with the integrase inhibitor and TAF gain more weight as Especially women, then with TDF, and then if we look at, and this is in people who started treatment, and then if we look at later on when we switch, they switched to TDF, right. when everybody switched to TDF, the people on top had a, a decreasing weight, which is exactly what you said earlier. Right. TDF seems to have a weight limiting effect. I think the role of the booster in weight gain, there is a role of the booster in weight gain that may confuse the picture a little bit i don't think we can say tough causes weight gain i don't think we know we know that tdf limits the weight
2: gain almost like should i consider tdf and you know take advantage of it for its weight suppressive effects but then you know there's either the data and what about renal what about bone density and taking all these other things into account so, it's, it's not easy, but since we, I don't really use any boosted, you know, so I get rid of boosting anytime I can. I think that in the long run causes more harm than good.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we, we are trying to move away, aren't um, we? trying yeah. to move away from, from boosters anyway because I think we contribute to improve the quality of life of people living with HIV. They're not on boosted agents because there are less risk of drug interactions and negative outcomes.
2: Correct. As, and sometimes yes. I think people forget that, you know, they might not be on a drug that, that you know, uh, they'd have a drug interaction now, but maybe five years from now, you know, statins are safer now, but maybe everyone will be on a statin. You know, I I That's briefly true. mentioned the, the, uh, yep. the reproof study or, you Very know, biologics and, and things of the sort. I think... We have to keep in mind that even if they're not on this medicine now or don't have this diagnosis now, as biologics become more commonly used for, you know, cancer and other autoimmune diseases, we have to think about the future or, you know, anticipating that our patients will live 10, 20 more years. And oftentimes I think that especially specialists can get into silos and only think about my medication or the medication I put them on and not really the, the whole continuum.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thank you very much to Dr. Befito and Dr. Cespedes and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.